Well, if you'll remember when we started out in our study of 1 Timothy, we pointed out Paul's reason for writing this letter. If you turn over a couple of pages, depending on your translation, your Bible, to chapter 3, verse 15, we see why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. He says, Paul says, I wrote so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we have the reason that Paul wrote this letter. He's giving instructions to Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, on how the church is to conduct itself. Chapter 3, verse 15, gives God's instructions, as I said, for how we're to conduct ourselves in God's church, both when we gather and when we scatter. Now, scatter means when we leave, when we go out into the world. There's an instruction for us how we uh, conduct ourselves here. And there's instructions apply for what we do once we leave, because we're never ceasing to be the church, right? We're not the church just on Sunday mornings. We're the, we're the church 365 days a year. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. We never cease being the church. So there's instructions here. We need to understand that 1 Timothy is written not just for the church in Paul's time, but it's written for the church throughout all ages. Not just Paul's time, but it's, it's for us. Now, the week before last, when we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul told Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, to exhort the church concerning the need for a global concern. Remember that? That was the point he's making. Church, you need to have a global view. The church, Redbud, Baptist Church, has a worldwide responsibility. The church has a global mission. According to chapter 2, verse 1, the church is to pray for all people. Remember that? We're to pray for all the peoples. And according to chapter 2, verse 7, the church is to proclaim the gospel to all people. We pray for all people, and then we proclaim that gospel to all people. Well, today in verses 8 through 15, Paul continues with how the people of God are to behave in the household of God. Uh, If the church is going to pray for the salvation of all people, they have to do it in a proper way. In verses 8 through 10, Paul talks about a disruption that's going on in the church. Imagine that. There's a disruption going on in the church. Those things happen, right? We're not perfect people. Disruptions happen. In verse 8, the men were acting in anger, even during times of prayer. And in verses 9 through 10, the the women were dressing immodestly and and putting too much focus on external appearances. And so both women and men were neglecting what was most important, and that was being godly in their behavior. In verses 11 through 15, as we'll see, the topic changes, and the issue of teaching and leadership comes up. In particular, Paul deals with the distinct roles between men and women in the church. And I'll say this right away. This is a sticky subject. When you start talking about this, some of you women are like, yeah. Yeah. Well, you men listen. And I know the men are listening. They're not having a problem at all right now. Nobody's going to. There'll not be a man one fall asleep today. There's, there's some words in here you're going. Quiet and submissive. I heard those words. We're going to see what's going to happen here. Well. Man, just so you know, is it not exactly what you think it is, okay? And unfortunately, most of the time that's the case. It's never what we think it is. So the main idea we're seeing here, if you're looking at your handout, is the respective roles and proper behavior of men and women in the life of the church. So number one, verses 8 through 10, there's a disruption in the church. And verse 8 talks about divisive men. The men were being divisive, causing a disruption in the church. He says there, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or 
quarreling. So there's this idea there. He says you need to be doing this without anger or quarreling. So that tells us something was going on. There was some kind of disturbance, some kind of disruption going on in the church. Again, Paul just didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I think I'll write about this. The Spirit of God's moving him because there's something going on there. And Paul is specific here when he calls on men to pray. Now the word man here in verse 8 is not the word we see in other instances in the Bible where it refers to man in general. A lot of times we use the word man and we're talking about who? Everybody. Mankind. Our English word can sometimes refer just to humans, whether they're female or male. But here in verse 8, Paul uses a very specific Greek word which refers to male humans. Everybody understand that? Men. In particular, he's talking to here. I want men, male humans, in every place to pray. Now, we see those words there, in every place. It refers to the public worship gathering. That's what it's talking about. In this particular instance, in every place, when the church gathers for worship. In every place. It refers to every place where the people of God gather for worship. Now, just to clarify, Paul is not saying here that women cannot pray in the public worship service. Does everybody understand that? This is yes. I, I didn't hear the preacher say, men pray, women be quiet. Your pastor didn't say that. So if you go away saying that, you're not telling the truth. And so he's, he's saying here that women, he's not saying they can't pray, pray in public worship, but he's saying men should take the lead. Men should take the lead in prayer. Paul says that God desires the men of the church to be the spiritual leaders. They're to be leading in prayer. Specifically, notice they're to do so how? Lifting what? Holy hands. Now, uh, Paul's point here is not the position of prayer. Don't misunderstand that. It's not, his emphasis is not on the position. It's okay to lift hands. It's, it's, a, it's a gesture that we're t- talking to God when we do that. Uh, the position of prayer. It's not his concern that we lift our hands when we pray, but the point is the spiritual quality of the prayer. It's to be holy. That's the point here. Hands are symbolic of daily life. That's what they symbolize. You use your hands all day long in every situation that comes up, right? And it's symbolic of daily life. Our prayers are the prayers that issue from lives that are characterized by holiness. Praying with purity before God. Men leading the church in prayer. Men leading the church with holy lives. The direction that men go usually dictates what? Whoever follows, that's kind of the direction we go in. He's saying, men, you need to be leading. You need to be the spiritual leaders in the church. You need to be leading in prayer. You need to be living holy lives as an example in leading the church. Now let's make some application here. All followers of Jesus need to ask themselves, is there any deliberate sin that I'm holding on to in my life? If so, we need to confess that, right? That's what the Bible calls us to. Be pure before God. That's what it's saying here. It's calling on the men to do this. So if the men are the examples and they're to set that example, then the the rest of the people follow. Secondly, looking back at verses 1 through 7, where we saw that the people are to be praying for all people, all lost people to come to Christ, those who pray for the lost can't do so living lives that are characterized by unclean living. If we have a responsibility to pray for the lost of the world, to intercede for them, we can't come before God with 
dirty hands, right? We need to have holy lives. And men, you're to lead in that direction, to lead the rest of the church. But notice the words there without anger. Some of you have translations that use the words wrath or quarreling. The idea is here that we pray with peace before others. Something was going on in the church at Ephesus. Something had happened to, to cause the Spirit of God to move Paul to write this letter. And he said, man, you need to pray with holy hands. You need to have holy lives. You need to lead in praying. And you need to be doing this without anger. Now, most commentators believe that this was happening because of the false teachers. Remember, chapter 1, we have these false teachers. Don't tell me that false teaching does not cause problems in the church. It always causes problems. Because of the false teachers, there's all kinds of disputes in this church, and it caused anger and conflict among believers. Trust me, false teaching, poor doctrine will cause conflict and disruption in the church. David Platt, which I think most of us are familiar with, the president of the IMB, says that peace with God is artificial if there's not peace with others. Is there anything in your life right now that is unreconciled with another brother or sister in Christ? Is there anger? Is there quarreling? Is there a conflict? Those who pray for lost people cannot be characterized by anger and quarreling. These things go together. Praying for lost, proclaiming the gospel to, to the world. There can't be this going on. The church must not have angry, bitter men attempting to be the spiritual leaders in the church. That's what the Spirit of God is moving Paul to say to Timothy to lead the sheep. He says, Timothy, we can't be doing the work of God, reaching the world for Christ, if we have men who are the leaders in our church who are angry and bitter. They can't lead the church. Because the way they go is the way the church will go, right? The church will follow. Men in the church, you're the spiritual leaders. Set the example of praying, living holy lives, and being at peace with other believers. And men, you know this as well as I do. The way you live and the way you go is the way the church will go as well. It will follow as well as it should as long as we're living according to the Bible. Let me clarify something here. Peace does not mean overlooking sin. Sin in the church does not equate to peace for the church as a whole. False teaching only brings disruption in the church, but sin in the church brings a disruption as well. So in verse 8, we saw that there are three hindrances to effective prayer. In the life of the church. Men not taking their spiritual initiative to pray. That's one. Second is a lack of holiness upon the part of the men who are praying. And third, there's this bitterness and division that existed in the congregation. Paul's saying to Timothy, you need to exhort the brothers, the men of the church who are the spiritual leaders. Because the way the men go is the way the church goes. That here is how they're to conduct themselves in the household of God. Now verses 9 and 10... He gets to distracting women. So you have divisive men. Now you have distracting women. Verse 9. Likewise also, or in the same manner as I've just called upon the men, I'm calling upon the women. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Some of you, you may have read this, and you heard it read this morning, and you're thinking, what in the world is Paul doing? Or better yet, why is he doing this? There's always a reason why the Spirit of God directs the writers of the Bible to write. 
we know, not necessarily from the Bible, reading the Bible, we know historically from other resources that in Ephesus and many other major cities in the world, wealthy women were known to show off their wealth. You're going, that happens today, right? Some things never change, right? It continues on. We are who we are. And one of the ways they would do this is by the way they would what they would wear in terms of clothing. They would wear this elaborate jewelry and, and, and particular various different kinds of hairdos that they would create. Often jewelry and diamonds and pearls would be placed in the hair. And their desire, their goal was to do what? Look at me. Drawing attention to themselves. Now, listen women. Are you listening? Listen carefully. Paul is not prohibiting women from looking attractive. Write that down. Paul is not prohibiting women from looking attractive. Okay? All you ladies understand that? Nod your head just so I can say, I saw all the women say yes. Paul is not saying that. He's not saying that women shouldn't look attractive. They can do so as long as they're not seductive or flashy. Nor is he putting an absolute ban on women braiding their hair or wearing jewelry. He's talking about the emphasis behind what you are wearing. What's the emphasis behind that? The question here is, are you purposefully drawing attention to yourself? That's what's going on. Are are you a distraction? Is it wrong to do so in the public gathering of the church to distract people? God says yes. Why? Here's why. The only person that we ought to focus on when we gather here is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only reason you're here today. That's the only reason we gather. So notice who Paul is speaking to here. This is very, this is very important. Notice who Paul is speaking to. Look at verse 10. For women who profess what? Godliness. The standard given here, listen carefully ladies, the the standard given here is for believers, those who profess Jesus as Savior and Lord. You should know, based on your profession of faith and what the Word of God says, that means there may be people who show up at church who are unbelievers that we need to be very careful what we say and what we think of them. They don't understand this. And rightly so. Paul's not talking to unbelievers, he's talking to believers. He's saying that if you profess Christian women... If you profess Jesus, you should not do anything that draws attention to yourself. Paul gives us, I'm grateful that he gives us words here, the Holy Spirit does, to guide us when it comes to our dress and our outward appearance. Notice there, modesty and self-control. He gives you some guidelines. These two words are dealing with the attitude. They're dealing with what? The attitude. What you're thinking and how you're approaching this. He's dealing with the attitude that characterizes a woman's approach to her appearance in worship. What's the motivation? What's going on there? Notice the word modesty. Modesty has the idea of decent or orderly mixed with humility. Don't miss the last part. Decent or orderly mixed with humility. At the heart of this word, listen carefully, is the idea of shame. Now, for those of you who use a King James translation, the word is shamefacedness. We don't hear that word in our day and time, right? Shamefacedness. 
A godly woman should be ashamed and feel guilty if she distracts someone from worshiping God or contributing to someone's lustful thoughts. That's what that word means in the King James. Modesty. It's an attitude of not dressing to be the source of distraction. Then he talks about discreetly. It means self-control or, or having good sense. It describes this inner self-control. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual radar that tells a woman what's good and proper. Did you hear, hear what we said? It's a spiritual radar. You know what radar does, right? It detects what's coming, what's good. Paul here, he's stating a principle. He's not laying down a dress code other than to say a woman should not dress in order to draw attention to herself when she comes into the meeting of the church. A person's clothing, man or woman, I'm not leaving the men out here, should reflect their state of mind, their spiritual condition. Better yet, a person's clothing does in many ways reflect their spiritual state of mind. Let's make some application here. Men and women, I think it's quite simple. Don't dress in order to draw attention to yourself, especially in the gathering of the church. Don't have the attitude that says, what can I wear today that will make me look good to people around me? That should never enter our mind when we're getting prepared to come to worship. What can I do today to get people to look at me? Because here's the deal. If everybody's looking at you, who are they missing? They're missing Jesus. What's the most important thing for them to be seeing? Instead, your attitude should be, how can I dress and what can I do today that would draw the most attention to the glory of my God? Men and women should not distract others, but instead live to attract others to Jesus. We should live. We should dress. We should think. We should present ourselves in a way that we attract and draw people to Jesus. In particular, here he's talking to ladies, Christian women who make a claim to godliness. That godliness should be seen. That's what he's saying here. That's what should catch the eye of people. And trust me, ladies, it does. It catches the eye of people. People who are godly, who have character that reflects the image of Jesus, they appear attractive. And that is what women and men are to work at. That is to be our greatest concern. Let me speak to young men and young women today. Can I give you a word of advice? The old saying, don't judge a book by its cover. You know what that's talking about, right? What's on the outside ain't always what's on the inside. You need to be careful. You need to understand the spiritual condition of that person that you are pursuing. Verses 11 through 15. Paul deals with the distinct roles of men and women in the church. And if it wasn't already sticky, it's about to get stickier, if that's a word. Leadership in the church. Now before I begin this part, I want to say some things here. First, I believe in the equality of men and women. As a pastor, as your pastor, I'm committed to seeing both men and women develop in every area of their life. Second, are you listening? I didn't write the Bible. God didn't even consult me in the process. Alright? I just teach what it says. And third, the Bible is not politically correct. You might as well just get that in your mind. The Bible's not politically correct. 
It's not in tune with our present cultural feelings. As a matter of fact, it's contrary to our cultural feelings. When it comes to the roles of men and women, the Bible's clear that both male and female reflect the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Men are not superior over women, nor women over men. In Christ, men and women are equal. But at the same time, they fulfill different roles. Equal, but different roles. Verse 11. Keeping in mind that God wrote the Bible, and not the guy that's about to tell you what God said. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. Some of you men, if you were asleep, you just woke up. Quiet. I told you, you need to be quiet. And you need to be submissive. Well, let's look at what this says. Most of the times when dealing with these verses, people tend to jump straight to the words, what? Quiet and submissive, right? They forget everything else in there. And in doing so, they miss something. And that's the word, learn. Let a woman learn. Learn here refers to hearing God's Word. Being taught God's Word. Now you may say, particularly in our context now, what's the big deal about that? It may seem obvious that women should be taught God's Word. Right? Ladies, has there ever been a time in your life when you were told you couldn't go to church and be taught God's Word? Just the men show up and the women. You never had that to happen, right? It's significant that Paul directs the women to learn because in this particular time, in Jewish culture, women were not able to go to school and learn. Jewish culture did not hold women in high regard. They were not barred from going to the synagogue, but they were not encouraged to learn. And because that, I, that idea, listen to me, because that idea didn't come from the Bible, Paul is commanding that women be taught. Are you ready, ladies? Women are just as intellectually capable as men. Some of you ladies are going, yeah. <laughs> They're just as smart as men. Yep. I got bobbleheads now. They're just as smart as men. And of course, many are smarter than men. Yeah, they're really nodding now. We know that, women, right? I didn't tell you nothing you didn't already know. Many of you go, yeah. That happens in my house all the time. (laughs) But Paul wants women to learn. As long as their attitude is marked by two qualities. Quietness and submissiveness. Spiritual equality exists between men and women, but there is a difference in their roles. Now that word translated quietly, some of you have a translation that has the word silence. And some of you men may have that underlined or highlighted in your Bible. The word quietly or silence doesn't mean absolute silence. Uh-oh. Uh, that changes things. Does not, it doesn't mean absolute silence, but rather to have inner tranquility and peace. That same word was used in chapter 2, verse 2, when it says, pray that we may lead peaceable and quiet lives. It's the same word. It doesn't refer to absolute silence. A quiet and peaceable life is not a life of total silence. It's a life of untroubled. A life that is peaceful and content. That's what that's talking about. 
So ladies and men, what does that word mean? Does it mean absolute silence? Men, you can't go home today and tell your wife you need to be absolutely quiet. It means to have an inner, untroubled, peaceful contentment. And that same word is used again at the end of verse 12. Look there. I did not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she used to remain quiet. Paul says, they're not to have authority over men, but they're to be what? Quiet. And what does that mean? In other words, this quietness is the opposite of exercising authority over men in the life of the church and in other places in the Bible as well as the home. Don't exercise authority over men. Instead, be quiet. The quietness that Paul has in mind is the kind of quietness that respects and honors the leadership of men that God has called to oversee and lead the church. Quietness means not speaking in the way that compromises that authority. Does everyone understand, leaving today, what quiet means or silence means? Does it mean absolute quiet and silence? No. It means to have this inner peace and contentment that God has ordered things the way He's done, and that's the way it is. Verse 11 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The second favorite word. Submissive. It's a military word. It means to be under in rank. A lieutenant and a sergeant are equal people, Right? but they're different in rank. Even so, women are put themselves in rank under men in church leadership, as well as leadership in the home. Paul adds the words here, don't miss these, with all submissiveness. To show that it's more than mere outward obedience. It's an attitude of respect that's included. So what is that saying? It's not just the action, it's what? The mindset or the attitude behind that action. The object of their submission. Here is church leaders, those who lead the church, those who are pastors, who teach the Word of God and equip the people to do the work of ministry. Verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. These have caused a lot of controversy. A lot of ink has been spilt and a lot of paper has been used in writing about this. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Again, this phrase raises a question. Can a woman ever teach? If this is all you had, what would you come to the conclusion of? Women can't teach. If this is all you have, but this is not all we have. In order to answer this, we should look at other places in the Bible where Paul talks about women teaching. For example, don't turn there, just write these down. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 says that the older women are to teach the younger women. And at the end of the verse, it says they are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. Another example is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, 14. Where Paul tells Timothy to remember whom he learned the Scriptures from. And the people he has in mind, does anybody remember their names? Eunice and Lois, Timothy's grandmother and his mother. Timothy's father was not a believer. So Timothy's mother and grandmother taught Timothy as a child the Scriptures. Another example, not to exhaust them all, another example is a lady named Priscilla in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 26. It says there, when Priscilla and Aquila... Her husband heard Apollos, they heard Apollos teaching, 
they took him and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. So a man and his wife took a man who was proclaiming the word of God, who got some things sort of kind of wrong or he didn't get the full picture, and a man and his wife took him aside and says, Hey, and they taught him more accurately the things of God. So it's not likely that Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 2.12 that every kind of teaching is off limits to women. There are examples of them teaching younger women, teaching children in some way, as we saw, teaming up their husbands to give private teaching. In this case, Apollos. So what do we do with Paul's words? I do not permit a woman to teach. It's probably wise, not probably, it is wise to interpret that based on the phrase that comes next. The next phrase is, or exercise authority over men. See, we get ourselves in trouble when we pull things out of the Bible and we don't look at everything around it. We need to interpret, I do not permit a woman to teach, along with that phrase, or exercise authority over men. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. It probably means any kind of teaching that in some way relates to exercising authority. Teaching and exercising authority go together. When you teach, you're taking authority in that teaching. Paul forbids women teaching when it's part of their exercise of authority over men. In other words, a woman is not, listen... A woman is not to be a pastor. Some of you are going, well, i got acquaintances, i got family, i got friends who don't believe that. A woman is not to occupy an authoritative teaching position over men in the church. The norm should be men in leadership and teaching positions in the church. If God raises up a gifted woman, and He does, and we have them, we ought to recognize her ministry. But even so, she will have an attitude of submission to the male leadership. And she will focus on teaching women or children. So, how am I to view the idea of authority and submission? You should view authority as referring to God's calling of spiritually gifted pastors, men to take primary responsibility as those who are servant leaders and as those who lead by teaching in the church. And part of teaching is ensuring that teaching is followed. You should view submission as referring to God's call of the rest of the church, both men and women, to honor and affirm the leadership of pastors and to be equipped by them for the other various and many ministries available to men and women in the service of Jesus. And here's what I'll say. God intends for the entire church, all members, to be mobilized in ministry, male and female. No one gets a pass. When you join the church, you're in. You are to be in, and you are to be working in some capacity. And according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, verses 13 and 14, Paul gives the reasons for submission. Don't you love it? Paul gives you the reasons why we're supposed to do this. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Again, we have to be very careful here. It's interesting that every time Paul gives reasons for distinctions between men and women in the church, he always goes to the Old Testament. 
Notice that. He always goes to the Old Testament. This means that we can't dismiss this as a cultural matter that doesn't apply to our day. Paul always, because that's what a lot of people do. They'll say, Paul's an old fogey. That was true in his time, but we're advanced, we're more culturally alert, and so we don't have to apply these things in the life of the church. That's what people will say. Paul goes back to creation for his reasons for saying what he said. God could have created Adam and Eve at once, but he didn't, right? He first created Adam, and later he created Eve to be a what? For Adam, ladies, a helper. Yeah, you ladies know that, right? Men need help. God sent Eve, not vice versa. In 1 Corinthians 11, 9, Paul says, For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And men, before you start spouting that off to your wife, you better understand what it means. It means God sent her to be your helper, which means you need help. Right? He didn't create you for her. He created her for you. You need help. And even though Eve is equal with Adam as an image bearer of God, she was still to be subject to Adam so that their relationship, listen, reflected the image of God and His relationship to creation. So Paul is saying here in this verse that the order in creation should be reflected in the church. God set up an order in creation. Adam first and then Eve. And that's what Paul is saying is his reason. That's God's reason for doing things the way he does them in the church. He has an order for things. But then notice that Paul adds the order in verse 14, excuse me, of the fall. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, listen to me carefully. Paul is not, N-O-T, saying that Eve is guiltier than Adam. And he's not putting all the blame on Eve. Both are guilty. If you want to make sure I'm right on that, look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And Paul is not saying that women are more prone to deception than men are. That is not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is that in the fall, here's what we need to understand, the God-ordained roles were reversed. Satan didn't approach Adam, but he approached who? Eve. So that he could upset the reflection of God's image in man and women by tempting the woman to act independently of her husband in God's authority. Remember, what Satan told Eve, that she didn't need to remain under the control of her husband or God. She could attain God-like existence by acting on her own. Remember what Satan said to Eve? God doesn't really care about you. He's withholding all that's good from you. He doesn't want you to be like Him. Remember Him telling her that? And ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve's disobedience, our world has been broken. It's been messed up. When people ask you what's wrong with our world, why are we so messed up, you know what you can tell them? Adam and Eve. That's where it all began. That's why our world's in the shape it's in. God's original design was that everything was what? Good. Very good. But with disobedience to God came God's curse on this world. Disobedience. Sin caused all that's wrong in our world. We get sick. We get cancer. We have loved ones die. You know what causes that? Sin. 
That's the cause. Not necessarily personal sin, but it's sin, the curse. Our world has been messed up ever since the fall. Everything was good, very good, but with sin, God cursed His creation. But God promised Adam and Eve that He would do what? Send a rescuer, right? Someone to make all things new again. And who did God send? He sent Jesus, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Every promise that God makes, has made, is fulfilled in who? Jesus. God sent Jesus. Jesus is the one who's making all things new. God has a plan for our broken world, and His name is Jesus. So Paul is saying here that this role reversal that brought awful consequences on the human race, he says it should not be repeated in the church. That's what he's saying. The responsibility for teaching and leadership in the church falls on qualified men. And in case you're wondering if that's the case, if I'm right, read ahead to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. What comes next? The qualifications for men to lead the church. Here's what you look for in men leading your church. So how, how can women serve in the church? If they can't assume leadership and teaching roles over men, what can they do? Can I tell you, the further we go, the deeper this gets, okay? And some of you are going, I'm glad it's you and not me. How can women serve in the church? If they can't assume leadership and teaching roles over men, what can they do? Well, Paul goes on to show that a woman's normal area of ministry, primary role of ministry, is within the home. If she serves in her God-appointed way, she will receive a reward. Notice the reward for submission is salvation from the curse, verse 15. Yet she will, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You're going, what in the world? What does it mean when, when he says a woman will be saved by childbearing? Does it mean that women just need to have babies and they're good to go, they're, they're saved? No, that's not what that means. If that's what it would mean, that's what Paul would have said. What does it mean when he says that? I'll spare you all the painful details because there's, th- there's several different views. But here, let me narrow it down for you. Women will be saved spiritually with an emphasis here, listen carefully, on the future aspect of salvation. Women will be saved spiritually if their lives show the fruit of saving faith, namely, submission to God's order as evidenced by taking their proper role as godly mothers. The word saved in, in, in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, always refers to spiritual salvation. It always refers to that. Now, as I said earlier, this doesn't mean that a woman earns salvation by having children. That's not what he's saying. Instead, it looks at the future aspect of salvation. And to make sure we understand that, when a person repents of their sin and trust in Jesus, they are saved. And through the course of their life, they are being saved, and then they will ultimately be saved in the end. Saved, being saved, ultimately saved. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But genuine saving faith, Paul says, always results in a life of good works 
and the development of godly character. The hope here, he says, of future salvation should motivate us to a life of good works now. Why in the world does Paul mention childbearing? Paul mentions childbearing to tie in the earlier reference he made to the fall. Remember that? He took us back to the fall. These aren't just words that are to confuse us. They're making a point here. Paul mentions childbearing to tie in the earlier reference he made to the fall. In spite of Eve's sin, remember that? And her curse. Does anybody remember what Eve's curse was? Pain in childbirth. Exactly right. You remember that? Pain in childbirth. In spite of Eve's sin and the curse, women who hope in God and His salvation will submit to their role, their primary role as being that of the home. And evidence of their salvation, verse 15, it says, is their continuation in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. And so what Paul does is he comes full circle to say that the conduct of women in the church should be marked by godliness and submission. Women, you teach. There, there are places the Bible allows you to be teaching, but the, the role of leadership and primary teaching falls to the men. Your primary role of ministry for the glory of God is the home. Does that mean you can't teach in the church? Absolutely not. But there are limitations that the Bible gives us. And let me say this. We don't have the time. And you don't want to stay here that long for me to go into all the details of this. If you want to talk about this, you come to me and we'll talk. So let me give you three points of application right quick. The first one in particular. Check your attitude towards Scripture. Are you disobedient or are you submissive? This applies to everybody, man. This is just not the women. We all have a tendency to dismiss parts of God's Word that we don't like. If you only submit to the parts of the Bible you like, then you're just using the Bible to reinforce your sinful desires. What's your view towards Scripture? You know, Satan even quoted the Bible, didn't he? The test of whether you are under the Lordship of Jesus is when the Bible confronts your preferences. We need to determine what the Bible means before we apply it. Number two, check your attitude toward the opposite sex. Check your attitude, men toward women and women toward men. Do you have the attitude of competitive or cooperation? There should be no division between men and women in the church. Distinctions, yes. Divisions, no. Men should esteem and affirm godly women for their ministries. Women should respect and submit to godly pastors in their leadership. Pastors, 1 Peter says, are not to lord over the flock, but to be examples of godliness. The times when pastors need to use their authority is rare. Notice I said, using their authority is rare. If we all submit to God and serve in our God-given roles, there will be cooperation. And lastly, ladies in particular... Not that men are excluded from this, but check your attitude toward the home. Check your attitude toward the home. Is it a burden or is it a blessing, ladies? Children should never be viewed by Christian women as a hindrance to their fulfillment through a career. Children are one of God's greatest blessings. 
The responsibility of shaping their character through godly example in the home is more important than any career, male or female. Because the whole fabric of our society depends on it. If we seek fulfillment, even if through a teaching or a leadership ministry, we will come up empty. If we deny self and serve in the roles that God's Word ordains, He'll bless us beyond measure. Let's pray.